Welcome to Belief Beat, where we talk about things that matter with people who matter. I'm John Horner Eibler, this week's host from Unity Lutheran Church in Brookfield, Wisconsin. So we're joined on this conversation by four people you've met in the past. That would be Francis Love and Heather Pratt from Cross Lutheran Church in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and Gene Qualman Anderson and Kevin Anderson from Unity Lutheran Church here in Brookfield. We're partnered congregations. We do ministry together in a number of different ways, but there are so many things that we've only scratched the surface on as individuals and congregations. And these occasional conversations are a part of that, allowing us to get to know each other a little bit in this group of five people and allowing you to kind of eavesdrop on that and hear the conversation. And hopefully you will want to be a part of it in future ways, either in our ministries, when we worship together, um, looking at each other's websites. We can worship right now together online. Uh, if we click on each other's websites, we can see each other's services there. So there are just so many ways for us to be interconnected. This is Black History Month, and that's going to be the focus of our conversation on this particular podcast. I think an early analogy that might be a little helpful is um, both of these congregations are involved in a ministry known as the Bread of Healing Free Clinic, which has got its primary site at Cross Lutheran Church. The people who work at Bread of Healing often say that they, they long for the day that they'll be put out of business. And, and that will happen in the day where uh, everyone in the country has uh, good access uh, to medical care. But right now that is still not the case in this country, especially if your income level happens to be 100 to 250% of the federal poverty level. Uh, medical access remains a really tough thing, and so a place like the Bread of Healing Clinic still exists. You can take that analogy then and apply it to uh, Black History Month uh, in, in that uh, so much of the history of this country has been written uh, by and for white people. And so the stories of people of lots of other ethnicities and backgrounds uh, have not been included in the history of us as a people of a whole. You would long for a day uh, when you wouldn't need, in a sense, Black History Month anymore, but until uh, the histories of our country include more of the stories of all of the people who are a part of the country having a special month like February to focus on a really important part of the history of this country, uh, the African-American black people who make up this country, uh, is, is a real opportunity, especially for us as church people, to hear each other's stories and to learn from them and to grow because of them. I, so that's a big part of this conversation as well, is just hoping that as we talk today, uh, as we raise questions and, and tell stories, that You'll, you'll think yourself as a listener, well, what's my answer to that question? Um, haven't thought of it that way before. Uh, I'm, I'm glad to hear that story. Here's a story that I'd share if I were a part of this conversation. That's exactly what we hope you'll do as you listen today. And we should get started with that right now. Uh, I'm going to toss it to, to Fran or Heather first. We thought we should start with just some definitions uh, because I don't know that they're always uh, super clear when we hear them uh, discussed. So anti-racism, white privilege. Uh, can, could either of you unpack those words for us a little bit, uh, what they mean to you and, and how you would use them? Well, for myself, anti-racism um, is um, the opposition to racism. Uh, to racial hatred, bias, you know, racial bias, um, the systemic racism that we see that's so prevalent in the United States, um, the oppression of marginalized people. Um, so that's, that's what anti-racism says to me, that a person is um, uh, mentally spiritually and emotionally opposed to those, uh, those things. Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, thank you, Granny, for um, mm -hmm. sharing that. And yeah, um, all of that. And I think of it, um, you know, as a white person who, um, you know, when I grew up, I was taught certain things about what racism is. And oftentimes what we were taught was some of the more um, 
really blatant, explicit sorts of things like perhaps, um, you know, people showing up in Charlottesville um, that are, you know, white, wearing white supremacy, you know, shirts and, and you know, things like that or um, certain words you might say. And so um, to me then when I think about anti-racism, it's not merely am I um, doing those sorts of things, um, but also how do I participate in and benefit from some of the systems that are still around today? Um, and so it takes self-reflection. Um, it takes, um, you know, looking inside and seeing um, what may I have absorbed by living in this culture. Um, and then it also takes looking outward at some of the systems and seeing some of the dis discrepancies or the disparities and working to change that. Um, and then, so that this means that to be an anti-racist means that you're, you're looking at where does racism exist today and trying to actively work against that. Um, and I like that you also asked about um, white privilege is the same at the same time. So I'll just start by saying, um, you know, I am a um, child of um, people who worked in mines, you know, I, I, and factories and all of that. They were working blue collar people. And so um, it is often people who are working or blue collar themselves now who say, how do I have privilege? How can I possibly have privilege when, um, you know, I wasn't handed everything, you know, that sort of thing. And so I'm really glad you brought up this question because white privilege doesn't mean that we haven't had struggles because of our class or our gender or our, or other, or our sexuality, whatever that means. It means that we don't face the additional burden of not having white skin in this country. And mm -hmm. um, again, oftentimes white people don't like to hear that because you might think, well, I'm kind, I'm nice to everybody. But there have been studies that have shown you hand in the same resume to the mm -hmm. same company with a black sounding name they're so many times less likely to get called in for an interview. And so those are the kinds of things when we talk about white privilege, my name of Heather Pratt sounds pretty white on a resume. And um, while, I might, while I might face other discrimination in certain fields um, based on my gender, I don't have to worry about it based on my skin color. I don't have to worry about those kinds of things um, with my interactions with the police or in stores, I just don't even have to think about it. Um, and sometimes you can't see your white privilege until you go in a space where you aren't the dominant skin color in that room. Um, your white privilege might not show up to you if all you do is spend time around fellow white people is what I'm trying to say. And I'm saying mm -hmm. this from me personally, I'm seeing my white privilege um, in ways I hadn't before. Now that I'm living in the city and I'm serving at Cross, I see my whiteness showing up differently now than I did before. Um, so that's all, I, I give tons and tons and tons of disclaimers and explanations around that because I know that the phrase white privilege and even the word racism, that for some people, these are really, um, these are really um, words that conflict can arise around. And so I just wanted to give that really lengthy explanation because of that. <laughs> Thank you, Heather. Fran, you, uh, so if you're listening to this, even by our voices, I think you can tell that uh, Fran is our lone uh, African-American uh, black. Yes, I am. Yes, I so, am. So I don't want to lay this all on you, Fran, mm -hmm. uh, but no. so you, you gave a super succinct uh, 
definition of anti-racism uh, before the rest of us comment a little bit on white privilege. Do you want to comment on it? Um, I look at white privilege as being able to be free. That's how I look at white privilege. Oh, yeah. um, I look at it um, as being um, stress-free. And I say that because as a black person, the stresses that we carry, and um, this is something that means, um, it's something that I'm really emotional about uh, because I have um, so many memories you know, I'm 71 years old and I can think back to uh, being in four-year-old kindergarten and uh, having a principal in my school who at that time was, um, I didn't really know that he was racist. I didn't really know what it was that they were doing, but I knew what they were doing was wrong. And so um, as I've come up in, in life. And that's why a lot of black people sort of kind of get sidetracked when they, they just give up on being black and they want to try to assimilate into white groups as they can, uh, because it's so painful. It really is painful. You know, our principal was very mean. Um, the white kids at the school knew that they could say something to the principal about what, because there were a few black people there uh, in the neighborhood we lived in. And so he, they could say anything to him. Mr. Frosthead, you know, Francis, you know, she kicked me and he'll take me into the office and paddle my hands, you know, three times in each palm. Um, and it was a lie. And the kids knew that they could say it and get away with it. It's the same as now. Uh, when the Ziegler company made those giant bars and at Halloween, every student in the Milwaukee public school system got two of those giant bars, except that at our school, the black kids didn't get any at all until all of the white kids got two. And then they gave each of the black kids one candy bar. You know, we had a playground. This is right at Story School uh, on Kilbourne in Milwaukee there. Um, they had an area on the playground and it might've been maybe 12 foot square, but there was a mound in the middle of it and they called it Monkey Island. And that's where the black kids went to play. So, you know, when I think about racism and I think about anti-racism, I don't think that there is anything that a black person can do about racism. I don't think there is, it has to come from, uh, the people who are in a position to admit that it's wrong and then to correct it. That's just what I, I, I believe, you know, we've tried so long, you know, we've tried nonviolent, we've tried violent, we've tried, you know, working through systems and everything. And me, myself, as I age, I realize that there is nothing I can't, I could come out to unity and talk to them and everything about it. And their people are going to feel bad, you know, about the circumstances, but until people feel bad enough about it and know that as Christians, to be Christ-like means I have to actively do something about it. And until that takes place, I don't think there is, racism is racism, yeah. you know, so. Yeah. Thanks for, for just speaking to that. I, I, I love how you opened it, it's just freedom. And, mm -hmm. and something that um, uh, until the until the majority owns it, the minority can't That's solve right. it for us. Uh, it was interesting. We were just having a Bible study this morning on, on Zoom uh, talking about Jewish-Christian relations and how frequently they've been conflicted and how often, you know, in that relationship, blame has or stereotypes have been laid on uh, the Jewish community, Jewish, and it's like, yes. they're the minority. They can't, they yes. can't solve this. The majority. The oppressed group. is the oppressed. Yeah. You know. The majority I mean, group has to own it. Yes. Can I, can I go to uh, Kevin and Jean? Um, uh, 
How about how about your perspective on uh, your white uh, live in a suburban setting? Uh, uh, speak a little bit to these two things, either white privilege or um, uh, anti-racism and kind of your experience in observing it, being a part of it, uh, praying about it, thinking about it. I could go first. Um, I just want to say something um, kind of backing up what Fran just said about until everybody owns this problem, it's not going to change. When I was looking on the Unity's website, there's the anti-racism resources. I clicked on that and watched some of the videos. Um, I would encourage anybody to look at that. There's just a lot of really good stuff there. One was an interview from uh, with Father Brian Massengale, who is a priest. And um, he's, oh, it's like a 30 minute um, interview with him. One of the things that he said that really stuck out to me was he said, it isn't until white people are as outraged by this, meaning racism, as African-Americans and people of color are, that we're going to see substantial change in this country. And I just thought that was a really good way to sum up, you know, that it's yeah. all of our issues. It's not mm -hmm. just a minority issue. This is about our country. And I mean, that's could go on a little bit about that, but um, I have a few examples of white privilege. Um, probably have a, there could be a lot, but some that I would just like to highlight in my own life. One was um, I got stopped for, uh, for speeding in West Bend on Paradise Road or Avenue, whatever that is. <laughs> but it was only a 25, um, 25 miles per hour and I was going faster than that. And when the police officer came up to me, and of course, you're all nervous, you know, I mean, I was, he was calm. And then he asked me for my license, registration, and insurance. And as I was getting that from my center console, this was seven years ago. So this was before a lot of, um, you know, horrible things have happened since then to people of color who were in the same situation. But I remember thinking, he's going to just let me open my console. And he seems so calm. He does, he's not threatened. Um, mm -hmm. I could just get out my, my papers and he just stood there waiting for me. Mm -hmm. And like I said, that was seven years ago, but in 2016, Philando Castile in Minneapolis was doing the exact same thing. He was getting his license and registration after the police officer asked him for that when he was, was stopped. Um, he told the police officer, the officer that he had a gun in the car that was registered. He legally had the gun. The police officer fired seven shots and killed him. Um, I mean, that's just an example of how we were treated very differently. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know, that just really stuck with me. It, um, so that was one white privilege about getting stopped. The other thing is that I don't need to have a white history month because history is, and I think John said that in the opening too, but you know, history is mainly about white yep. people. Mm -hmm. um, when my kids were little and I would look for books for them, children's books, I didn't have a hard time at all finding books that represented them and their race. Mm -hmm. um, when I've looked for books children's books for either tutoring at Cross or for the Little Free Library at Cross. It's a little more of a hunt mm -hmm. to, find, to find books representing children of color. Um, it's a lot easier even finding, you know, little storybooks about the dogs that are the heroes and the cats and, you know, some of those I would default mm -hmm. to because it was harder to find those books. And when I was pregnant and had two children, um, I had a far less chance of dying in pregnancy, childbirth, or the, or the postpartum period than a woman who was Black. Black women are three to four times more likely to die from pregnancy-related complications than white women. Um, so those are a few examples. Thanks, Jean, very much. Uh, Kevin, want to Jump in. You're the only oh, one we haven't uh, let talk yet. Uh, 
it's but you guys have covered the topic very well there. I don't know if I have a whole lot to add except my my own experiences, which are um, I was raised in a very small Wisconsin town, all white. Went to all white high school. Went to engineering school that was in Milwaukee, which is mainly white. Worked at a big corporation that was mainly white, but also had proactive hiring practices to try to hire racial minorities and things like that. I guess in my in my work experience and my life experience up until a few years ago, I wouldn't have known what white privilege was. I just didn't understand the concept, had never heard of it before. Um, but as I learn more about it, I, I realize it, that my life has been, not because I have any particular privilege that's obvious, but I think I understand what white privilege means and that there are just things, systemic systems and things that are that I have benefited from that I just would have never known before. The first time I heard the term white privilege, it kind of set me back, kind of like Heather, you were saying. I mean, as a as a white person, I just didn't feel privileged and felt lucky in a lot of ways for a lot of things in life, but not particularly privileged. But I've come to understand that that white privilege is a thing that we all need to be aware of and deal with. Well, this can be for anybody, but why, why do you think, maybe this is especially for the white people on this conversation, but why do you think our community is so kind of insecure or defensive about that? Um, uh, I, I mean, we, we, so, we react so against the, the suggestion that we could be racist and I, I, I sometimes don't fully understand where that all comes from. Uh, anyway, what, it, it's gotta be more than just poor vocabulary choice. It might be because we maybe people think of racists as Ku Klux Klux Klan members and white supremacists and don't understand the subtleties of racism. Mm -hmm. I'm also thinking about the um, cognitive dissonance that can occur because of what we're taught in school. Um, you know, we're taught, oh, okay, um, slavery happened, and then um, Martin Luther King Jr. came along, and he ended it. He fixed it for us. It's basically kind of the narrative that is either explicitly said or implied, and so if that's what you're taught, and you're taught that, that oh, that was so long ago, and you aren't taught the ways that um, racism has been repackaged over time in different ways. Now, all of a sudden, when somebody says racism is a problem still, or that's racist, they're like, wait a second, as Jean was saying, um, no, I'm not racist. It's the Ku Klux Klan members that are, or racism isn't a thing that ended a long time ago. And so, um, I think a good bit of it has to do with, as you mentioned, um, the way that the information is presented in our schools um, is, is not one that gives space for alternative voices and perspectives. Um, and so, for example, one thing that I wish I would have learned in school um, was how slavery got repackaged. Okay, there was some reconstruction that happened, but there was backlash. So each time mm -hmm. there are, there's some progress made, then there's also white backlash. So reconstruction, but then it was, oh, now it'll be Jim Crow. We, we don't actually want them living near us. So we're going to be over here. You'll be over there. And in our minds, we'll be told that it's separate but equal, but it really isn't. Um, the same resources and quality of ed education and healthcare and all of that, it wasn't the same. But then, but then, you know, we have 
Martin Luther King Jr. and the people in the 60s uh, who also worked toward this. There was a lot of people, not just him. And then it's like, oh, okay, well now segregation's over, but people's hearts hadn't changed just because the law had changed. And people were still saying, I wanna be separate from you. And there was redlining that was still continuing. And it would say, well, black people aren't even allowed to buy a house in this neighborhood. You still have to stay over there. And why all this matters is then, okay, so then you've, you've still got people who were um, descendants of people just even like few generations back who'd been enslaved, who'd been set free with no resources and told you all have to live over here. And then um, we started to see then this all translated into, you know, being tough on crime and being the war on drugs and mass incarceration. And then what you wind up with is more black people and it's way disproportionate, the number of black people who are in prison. And once they're in prison, they can be put to work again for pennies on the dollar per hour while they're in prison. It's like they're back in slavery again. And so we learn a lot of little glimpses of, of our nation's history, but we don't ever get it all put together to see how the past is still affecting the present um, and how we're still, and, I, and not just Milwaukee. So I, 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 I know uh, moving up here, I know I've heard about it being like the most segregated, segregated city, but it's a lot of places where we're still segregated by zip code and the quality of education and healthcare and grocery stores and all of that is still there tied to zip code, even if we technically can live anywhere we want to now, um, regardless of our skin color, just the reality is that um, that still affects the quality of so many things today. And I wanna- Go for it. Well, what I wanted to say is um, a lot of that a lot of this has to do with the fact that from the very beginning of slavery, uh, the lessons taught were that the slaves were less than human. They didn't deserve to be treated as a human being. And so after years and years and hundreds of years of being told that, all those negatives, they're wild, you know, they're, you know, all the things that they, the negatives that were, were uh, labeled on the black people. Uh, and there was no vision, no vision of black people's humanity. You know, it was like, um, we were just here, but you weren't worth anything. You didn't deserve anything. Um, you worked hard so that other people could prosper. And they lived very well off the sweat of the black man's brow. And they were able to accomplish a lot of things off the sweat of the black man's brow. And so, but in doing that to make themselves, I'm, this is my own feelings too. I'm just gonna put that out there too, as a black person, that uh, they did that so that it could help them feel better about what they were doing. That is how I look at it. And they would say those things to their children. They would bring children out to lynchings, you know, uh, let your children, um, you know, spit on people and say that people are, you know, are less than, you know, that don't play with that nigger and don't, you know, uh, that is just, um, something that we cannot, um, storybooks are good and, and they're good for the black children to see themselves in a positive light and for families. I came from a family where we did a lot of talking about black people and the things that black people had done historically. So, you know, even before Martin Luther King, 
And, um, but for a lot of people, they didn't. And a lot of parents were at a place where, you know, they're just like, it doesn't make any difference. You know, I'm just tired of it. I, I can't fight anymore. The struggle is too great, you know? And so when you look at that and you think out of all these years, that has been taught generation after generation after generation after generation. And here we now are in 2021. It's, it's difficult to just all of a sudden up and say, well, you know, they're, they're decent people, you know, and that's what is said. It's not that they are equal. They are equal people, you know, we are no better than they are. That's not the, what we're told. It's that they're okay, but we the the connotation is we're 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 better. You see, that's how it comes off from white people. Mm -hmm. You know, I have a family, uh, and because of our family history, and um, um, uh, we've had um, my cousin who who went all the way back in our family and some of the, on the side of the plantation owner who owned our family, some of our white relatives have come, well, they had just started coming to our reunions, probably in 2009 was the first year that they had come, but they found out that they had relatives, you know, uh, and Mr. Harrelson, the plantation owner did in fact register his slaves under his name. So. Um, through genealogy, you know, we've come to know a lot about each other, but by the same token, they're still better than we are as Harrelsons, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, uh, because that's what they were told when they were saying to their family members, we're going to go. This is our family. You know, we've, we've got this right here. It shows us. And, and the ones that were brave enough to come you know, they, they shared those stories that the other white members of the family were not, no, you know, even though we share the same bloodline, we actually share bloodline, you know. Wow. So I think until uh, it's taught and it's gotta be taught in a very deliberate way, people have to start uh, talking to the younger people but the middle-aged people are going to have to have a deep conversation also because there are people who, no matter what, um, my friend who's a member of an ELCA church uh, right here in Milwaukee, well, they're kind of, well, they're in Milwaukee County, and um, her older congregation, um, there was Pastor Mark Thompson. Do you know him? He was there at that yeah. church, and he tried to, you know, do some things with that congregation. And those older white people, they actually kind of said, no, we're not doing that. He wanted them to have a Sunday morning worship at Alice's Garden. And you would have thought he, he told them to line up. He was gonna gun them all down with an Uzi. And so consequently, you know, a lot members of the church left, but he ended up leaving the congregation too. I, I just, uh... As Heather was finishing, I, I looked up, I was just curious statistically, because I knew it would be bad, but the uh, nationwide, the incarceration rate for uh, uh, Blacks is five times that of uh, whites per oh, capita, yes. and in Wisconsin, it's 10 times. Oh, absolutely. So uh, just kind of circling back to one part of a much broader reality. Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, for, for any of you, how about uh, one of the things we just wanted to touch on with Black history and education was either what's something uh, that you that you were taught in school that you you now realize was uh, is racist, um, or what's something really good that you've learned in your life that you that you didn't learn in school and maybe wish you had. <clears throat> I would think there are, that's kind of an open-ended and possibly endless question, but I don't know what pops to, to anybody's mind on that. Well, what I learned in school was that it was um, 
that my best interest in education was not important. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just happened to be in a situation where I ended up in a school that was mostly white. And so when I, when I went to schools, like when I went to story school and then I went to middle school and then I went to high school, I went to high school at Riverside in the sixties. In and so of course, you know, my mother always said, I don't care what, you know, how you feel about things because you know, this whole thing with the civil rights and everything was brewing real heavy at the time. And my mother said, you sit in that classroom. Uh, If the teacher's talking, they can't plug your ears. You know, so you learn everything that they're teaching to the the other kids there in the school, you know. Uh, But we had a big problem because there there was no Black history taught in our school. So we did all kinds of stuff. We burned history books and everything. And I know it was a terrible thing to do now, but just out of sheer frustration and not being able to hear anything about anybody that looked like me. Um, uh, By the time I got to high school, I was just like, come on, there's gotta be something somewhere written. But there wasn't. There wasn't. Nothing to say that you were of any value, but we knew we were of value because we, as a people, worked in the fields and made it so that other people were wealthy. Right. And we survived. <laughs> and we survived. And um, one other thing I'm going to say, and I'm probably going to be pretty quiet, uh, is that I believe that people fear that out of all the atrocities that had been done to Black people from the time the ships first docked up, up to and including the insurrection, that they believe that Black people will do that to them if they were to open up and level the playing field. That is what I believe. There is a fear that that would happen. But in all the times that things took place when the men left home and they they left the slaves at the plantation, they didn't harm their wives and children. They protected them, you know, but when they came back, they still, you know, that's a great testimony. I, you know, Fran, I, I just hope for anybody who's listening, I, uh, I'm so glad you said, and it, it makes me sad that as a four-year-old kindergartner, um, you were already aware of it and that it, that it was wrong. And, and mm-hmm. that four-year-old should have to already sense that. But four-year-olds are also really perceptive. Mm-hmm. And, and they sense reality. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a powerful witness, and maybe the rest of us are a little inadequate to speak anything to it. But uh, anybody else, when when you think of what you were taught or what you learned on your own, any particular lessons stick with you? Fran, I'd like to say thank you for sharing such an honest, your your honest experience. I just feel like that helps all of us. Um, And thank you for doing that. Um, As far as what, what I didn't learn, I did not realize how prevalent lynchings were and in what recent, how, how recent history there were so many lynchings. That's one thing. I just didn't learn in school. I don't know if they glossed over it. Um, Another thing, and this is with Native Americans, I had never heard that the European settlers gave Native Americans blankets infected with smallpox Mm -hmm. in the 1760s. And I I first heard that after we had the anthrax scare where that after September 11th, 2001, Um, In September and October, there were those envelopes of anthrax that were sent to some senators. And Mm -hmm. in that reporting is when they referred to the Native Americans. It was talking about biological warfare and talking about the Native Americans receiving those blankets. And I was just blown away, you know, thinking, how do we not hear about this? Mm -hmm. And um, it was interesting because it came up again 
in PBS NewsHour the other night when they were talking about Native Americans and the COVID vaccine mm -hmm. hesitancy that some of them have. And mm -hmm. they were talking about what the government has done to them, similar to how, how the government had um, done experiments with African Americans and um, in the Tuskegee um, right. experiments. So um, anyway, that, that was one thing I was surprised about. And then I was going to say mass incarceration. Um, and I think it's interesting that in the 80s with crack cocaine, that was seen as a criminal problem. Now we have an opioid crisis that is seen as a public health emergency. Mm -hmm. And some of that could be because in the last 40, 30, 40 years, people are seeing um, substance use disorder in a different way, more of a disease and less as a criminal activity. Um, but, you know, that's, there's, it's, it led to a lot of mass incarceration of black people in the 80s. And like Heather was saying, all the things that go, that follow that. So anyway, just a few things. I was thinking a little bit, kind of circling back to what Fran was saying uh, in terms of uh, perception of safety. Uh, I mean, I, I talk frequently to uh, uh, black people or anyone of color uh, when they're in a more suburban area, they're just always a little more alert uh, mm -hmm. and aware that uh, for no particular reason it could become unsafe for them quickly. Then I, I just contrast that to my own experience when I come to cross and uh, in pre-COVID times, you know, I'd be there once or twice a month and, um, uh, you know, I'd be like leading the Bible study for the empowerment program on, on Wednesdays. Mm -hmm. so one, uh, one white person, maybe two white people and 150, uh, you know, people of color. Um, I always felt perfectly safe. Uh, <laughs> and, and actually, uh, had a lot of fun. Uh, hope to be back there at, at some point and <laughs> be normal again. But um, yeah, that's another thing that just puzzles me, this, this perception that, uh, well, if we'd get even with somebody, they are, they're gonna wanna get even with us. And it's like, well, I project that on, on people mm -hmm. who have no intent to, to get even. Mm -hmm. Um. Uh, so let's let's we we're we're kind of pushing up to the end of our our conversation. Let's go a little bit in the direction of so we're all church members, people of faith. Um, how can our church communities? What are one or two conversations we should be a part of? What are one or two things we should read or listen to? Uh, um, how can we help each other, especially the white community, to uh, get off of kind of the, the place where we seem to be stuck, which is aware, but at some level, unwilling to, unwilling to change? Anybody want to take a, again, a really broad question, I know, but anybody even have one little thread that you want to pursue on that? Heather, you want to tackle that? Sure. Well, you know, one of the things that I think can be um, a helpful start is thinking about our baptism. You know, the ELCA um, rite of baptism and when we do our affirmation of baptism, one of the things it talks about is working for justice and peace. And so um, just kind of just claiming that part of what it means to be disciples of Jesus and working for justice. And especially when, um, you know, the culture around us in some circles um, shames that kind of work. You know, there's a phrase about being a social justice warrior as if it's a bad thing um, to work for justice. And I think we need to pay attention to that. I think we need to pay attention to what do our um, newscasters and our cultural icons, you know, what do they say about mm -hmm. working for justice? And then who are we called to be based on fo being followers of Jesus? Mm -hmm. um, 
I think that that can be um, a good starting place. And if there's one thing that I would share is that um, what I'm learning, spending more time here um, in the city at Cross is that um, a lot of times we as white people want to come and serve. We want to, to help and that's a good thing, right? We're like doing service is a good thing. Um, but at the same time, um, what I hear is a longing for relationship from the people that are living in the city or go to cross people who are black, indigenous people of color. They're like, don't just come and drop off the cans of food. Like get to know me as a person. Like, so I, I first of all, just want to put that out there for you to know that it's a wonderful opportunity to really come together across uh, our differences and cross it. That's who they are as a congregation. That's who they've been for a long time. Race, class, gender, ethnicity, sexuality, they're all coming together and that you're in, invited to do that when it's safe, you know, for us to do that after COVID times. Um, but the other thing, and I think you you alluded to this at the very beginning, John, when you talked about how when we do this service or these community services, that meets an immediate need that's there. Um, but to see justice work as also um, advocating for changes in policies so that so much of this work doesn't exist, um, that there isn't so much that needs to be done because pe more people are being treated fairly, receiving a fair wage, things like that, um, so that they, they don't need uh, those services in the first place. And to know that um, when, when I'm there, um, the people who are coming and are receiving um, items from the food pantry are also some of the same people who then want to pay it forward and volunteer. So it, it just blurs the lines a little bit of who's giving, who's receiving. You know, all of us have times in our life where we need to receive help and all of us have that innate desire to want to help too. Um, yeah. Cool. Fran, I'm gonna eventually give you the last word, but I'll go to Kevin and Jean with kind of the same direction as what Heather just talked on. Um, people of faith, what are good next thoughts, prayers, or actions or listenings on our part? Well, I think for me, um, what's been done in the past with the book studies and just awareness and communication has helped me a lot. And I'm one of those volunteers that comes to cross. And I just wanted to say, as you said, John, when for me, just being there, um, being around people that aren't like me, that don't have the same background as me, getting to know them a little bit, spending time there, and it's such a warm and welcoming place. It just really helps change the perspective or, or at least enhance the perspective of someone of my background. And I, I found it to be very useful, very helpful. Jean, you want to piggyback on that? I, I would say the same thing, just... Oh, continuing um, with our partnerships with Hepatha and Cross um, and building on that, um, hopefully having more people involved in some of the programs and volunteer opportunities um, and just keep talking, keep up with this kind of thing. And as I mentioned before, on, on Unity's website, that um, anti the anti-racism resources, I think are really good. Um, there's a lot of information on there. Um, so check that out. Yeah, and for my part, I would just second, um, uh, you know, it, it is cool to, to serve, but I, I think probably that's been one of the, mis I guess, mistakes of, of the, of the church as a whole is the idea that you somehow build the relationship around serving. I mean, we should build the relationship around relationships and yeah. getting to know each other. And maybe in some respects, it's important to almost step back from 
some of what we do, emphasis on doing, and, and find our way back to uh, actually meeting each other and learning each other's histories. Um, Fran, can you wrap us up there with, um, I don't know, what, what uh, either from your faith or from your history as a, a black woman living in the United States, what's something you're like super uh, proud of or is very much kind of defines who you are and you want to leave with well, us at the end of the conversation? Well, um, the one thing is that um, as a younger person, um, I was very, I, I, I don't want to say hateful because I hate to, I don't want to use that word. I, I think I was just so angry, so angry. And I was angry at white people. And that's as a group. Even though my mother always said, you treat everybody, you know, as an individual. But um, through my teens and early 20s, I had a very strong dislike for white people. And what I found out uh, as I was a member of Cross Church, and thanks be to God for sending Joe Elwanger there um, in the late 60s, was yeah. that when you look at a, another person, you don't look at that person to be different. You look into the eyes of that person and know that the eyes looking back at you are the eyes of God. And if you look at people that way and you expect that they're looking at you the same way, then a lot of those other things will fall, will fall by the wayside. And so that's what I do now. I look at people as people. We talk about people of different races, of different colors. We talk about that all the time, you know, but the thing of it is, is that we are all people. We are all made in God's image. And God did not come as a color or a hair texture or as a weight, a body weight, or, you know, he came as someone that loves us and looks at each one of us knowing, knowing that no one is perfect, knowing that, that we could look at our fellow human being and feel that same way. Amen to that. That's um, beautiful. I will listen to you say that again a few times as we get ready to put this up, Fran. Thank you for sharing and for all of you for being a part of mm -hmm. uh, this particular Belief Beat uh, Black History Month conversation. Some folks from Cross and from Unity Lutheran Church. And um, if you've had a chance to listen to this, uh, please share it with others uh, who uh, will want to hear it as well. And I think it's uh, a good investment in our time together. Uh, thanks again to yes. Francis Love, to Heather Pratt, uh, Kevin Anderson, Gene Coleman Anderson for being a part of today's conversation. It's been Belief Beat. Goodbye for now. <laughs>